Hey folks, this is Jeff Fry. Welcome to the Shigon Podcast. We have a special guest today, longtime friend. Um, you might recognize his name. His pops was uh, should be in the Hall of Fame right now. I'm not quite sure why he isn't, but uh, my good friend, Billy Martin Jr. Welcome to the show, Billy. Hey, great to be here, Jeff. Uh, and he will be. He'll get in soon. It's It's got to happen. It's got to happen. I mean, it's got to happen. It, he changed the game. He changed the game. And, uh, man, I wish we had some managers in the game today that would do things that your dad would do back in the day and take risks. And, yeah, I think that's missing from our game. We just don't see it anymore. It was so exciting. Billy ball, you know? Well, when was the last time you saw somebody steal home? I think it's against the rules. I think Manfred said that's a, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> that guy's got no feel for what's you know, going on. No idea. Uh, we'll get into that. We'll get into that uh, here in a little while. But I want to tell our listeners first off, um, you know, how long we've known each other and how we met. And I'm not, I think we met in 1993 um, when Kevin Kennedy took over as manager of the Rangers. We might have met before that. Um, I know that we went on a. Uh, Celebrity hunt, the Mobetta celebrity Mo- quail hunt. <laughs> yeah, in somewhere in Oklahoma, and it was uh, Jamie Adams drove, and then Bobby Witt was in there. Yeah, Brad Orangeburg, me and you, we went up there for the the Mobetta hunt, uh, celebrity quail and chucker, and I think pheasant too, hunt. And um, I mean, there was a bunch of guys up there, a bunch of players. I remember Norm Charlton was there. Um, Jay Buner was there. I can't remember all the other guys, but uh, that was a good time. Toby, Toby Keith. I, I, I hunted with this guy who was a really nice guy, and he has a little uh, plastic plant there about the size of the Doskas Hills in Arlington. And so he was just downplaying all that, who I know are multimillionaires. And he told me the neatest story. He, he was in a college band at the University of Wisconsin with. Steve Miller and Boz Skaggs oh my God. were the were two of the two of the four band members, and the he was the other one, and the other guy became the marketing director for Newsweek magazine. I'm like, uh, yeah, I would have liked to have been in that band. Those guys all did pretty good. They did, man. Those guys, those guys must have went to class. <laughs> I know we, I know me personally. I you know if it wasn't for baseball. I'm not 100% sure I would have gone to college. Nobody in my family had ever gone to college. It was just basically graduate high school and get a job. So baseball provided me the, you know, the free education. And um, I'm not sure about you if you'd have gone to college without baseball. Well, differently than you, I could study on the bench <laughs> at Texas Tech. But, uh, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? But uh, I think – are you? Do you know for sure when we met? Was it in '93? Uh, it had to be because I don't think we met before Kevin came to town. Because you weren't really that involved with the Rangers, but mm-hmm. I know you um, were one of Kevin's agents uh, when he took over with the Rangers, and then we started hanging out a little bit together and got to know each other. Absolutely, yeah. I don't. I don't. You know, if we'd met, it was on whatever a handshake. I don't remember it. I mean. Like you say, the Mo Betta trip, we all got to know each other. That was a good time. That was. 
But it we was. spent more time in the Big Apple and places like that. Yeah, that was the hangout, man, the Big Apple, all the players and coaches and from visiting teams too. And, it, and you know, then we started hanging out with the hockey players and Ludwig mm-hmm. and Matt Pachuk and those guys. And I mean, that was cool when you have, you know, your local hockey team players and your local baseball team players hanging out, you know, in the evenings and getting to know each other. That was, that was pretty cool. Yeah, it was. The nineties were special that way. I mean, I don't know of any place in the Metroplex that stuff like that's going on now. It's too bad. It is. I mean, and I don't ever remember any football guys being there, but you know, the stars, I mean, Monday night was the night we used to all go hang out and have some beers and just kind of yuck it up with each other and, and get to know each other. And, you know, and I actually, I actually got to do a commercial um, with Mike Madonna after like my rookie year with the Rangers, I guess, I don't know if they thought I was going to be a big star like Madonna didn't quite pan out, but uh, I did get to do a commercial <laughs> with, and he's, you know, he's, I'm pretty sure he's in the hall of fame, isn't he? In the I don't know. I don't know, but I'll tell you what, for being a good dude, he should be, because I sure did like him. Uh, he was a celebrity, right? Yeah, he, he was a nice guy. First class guy. And yeah, I really enjoyed meeting him. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how you helped orchestrate me leaving the Texas Rangers <laughs> and going to the Boston Red Sox. I mean, it's such a cool story. And for our listeners, I was. Uh, Let's see, I had um, gotten a little bit sideways with Johnny Oates, and he didn't really like me for some reason. And um, the Rangers took me off the roster. I went to spring training with the Tigers. That didn't work out. So then I had to choose between going back to Oklahoma City with the Rangers AAA or going to Seattle organization. I'm like, thought that, you know, with my familiarity with the Rangers, I'd be better off staying here. So here I am like two months into the season in AAA, and they've called up all these other guys that they never would have called up over me to play second base. Rene Gonzalez, Lou Frazier. Rene was a utility guy. Lou was an outfielder. And they called these guys up to the big leagues instead of me. And I, so I knew my time with the Rangers, was my days were numbered. And Billy had a conversation with Kevin Kennedy because – the Red Sox were having a really rough time at second base with Jeff Manto and, and Will Cordero. And you take over, Billy, and tell our listeners what you told Kevin. Uh, <laughs> well, well uh, Kevin was complaining on a daily basis about what was going on there. And I was reminding him on said daily basis that uh, – your second baseman is rotting away in Oklahoma City right now. You could trade a bag of baseballs to get him. I mean, I don't know if everybody watched what I did, but when you were batting in the two-hole for Kevin in Texas, I'd never – I don't remember many guys that did the run and hit as well as y'all did. And – Otis Nixon would be on first. He'd take off. If Jeff got a pitch he could drive to the right side, he did. And I can't tell you how many games you guys started off first and third with no outs or or with a one-run lead because you smoked a double into right field. 
you know, it, it, it cracks me up and watching these guys today that can't even hit against the shift. You, you weren't trying to punch and Judy it to right. You were trying to drive the ball over there. And it was, it was, it was a beautiful thing to watch. It was old school baseball. And I finally convinced Kevin to, you know, wake up and smell the coffee. And he said, you're right, damn it. You're right. And got over whatever was uh, chewing at him. And he went and got you. Do you remember what they traded for you? Because I don't. No, I don't think they traded anything for me. I, I think it was just uh, cash considerations or something. I don't even think they got if they they couldn't have got much cash, but um, I think it was just you know I had a side letter in my contract. You know, back in the day, we used to used to be able to put those in contract in contracts, and so the the side letter said that any team in the major leagues can acquire me, uh, but they have to bring me to the big leagues. And the Texas Rangers have the right of first refusal, I guess it is, and they can call me up or they have to let me go. And they decided to let me go. And so I showed up. You know, my agent, Pat Rooney, called me because I, I had missed like two or three games in a row. I pulled a quad playing center field. Oh, that's and, uh, right. And you, you acted like you were fine. Yeah, well, I lied. He, he asked me, he goes, hey, uh, you know, the Red Sox want to acquire you, but I see you haven't played in two or three days. Are you hurt? And I was hurt, and I lied, and I said, "No, I'm not hurt." He goes, "Oh, why haven't you played?" I said, "Ah, just you know, tired. They gave me a break, whatever. I don't even remember what I said, but I had a torn quad, and it was hurting bad. And uh, man, I have half a—I had like an indention. I still have it to this day in my right quad. It looked like half a golf ball. And so I fly to Boston, and I go in Kevin's office. And, you know, we'd known each other from Texas. And he goes, hey, man, I'm glad to have you. He goes, uh, you know, sit down. And, and he goes, so why haven't you played? See, you haven't played in a couple of days. Are you hurt? And I, it was a moment of truth, Billy. And I was like, well, you want me to tell you the truth, Kevin, or you want me to bullshit you? He goes, I want the truth. I said, screwed up my quad about three or four days ago. Freaking running, running in the outfield and something popped in my quad and then he says how bad is it and i said he goes what percentage are you i said honestly i'm i'm probably 60 percent and how do you know you know what percent you are i just guessed and i said but i'll tape it up as tight as i can and give you everything i've got and he goes well 60 percent of what you what you have is better than what we have right now he goes you're in there tonight and so sure enough i taped that sucker up and it hurt for probably couple weeks but I I was playing for my life and I forget he got they got me in June I think like the second week of June and from that point on in the season which is basically a third of the season gone I got almost 500 plate appearances the rest of the year and we had the best record in Major League Baseball after the All-Star break yes and I remember a quote from Dan Duquette the general manager that he said to Kevin, and you were guilty of this too because of that trade, that you guys screwed up his three-year plan by getting to the playoffs a year <laughs> too early. <laughs> yep. Yep. And then they freaking fire Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that uh, that relationship got a little, little rough between he and 
and Dan and um and I like Dan, but that was I don't know, there was some weird stuff going on there. I, I, I don't think you know, I really wished that Kevin had had, had uh had brought Jackie Moore with him there. Yeah. Be- because Jackie was that bench coach that always had his back, just like he had my father's back, just like he had Ron Washington's back. And I am not sure his staff really had his back there. That's too bad, too, because, I mean, we had a heck of a second half. And and one of the things I would tell you about Kevin was when Kevin first became manager of the Rangers, um, I think he admittedly made a lot of mistakes and the players didn't necessarily like him that much. Um, but when he went to Boston, he changed and he learned and we loved him. We loved playing for that guy, you know, and, and cause we knew he wanted us to do well. We knew he had our back and we knew we could go out after the ball game and have a couple beers and yuck it up. Like, you know, we didn't have to be afraid to be around our manager. A lot of times, you know, I could never do that with Johnny Oates. Oh, no way. You know, and some of the other guy, I could never do that. But with the managers that the players seemed to really like, man, we just, they're like one of the guys when the game's over, we're talking to them like we do anybody else. But, uh, you know, that's how Kevin was. And, and, you know, we've become pretty good friends now. I've had him on my previous podcast. And, I mean, I really, really like Kevin Kennedy a lot. Yep. No, it's uh, my first client, my first managerial client. And, uh, you know, we we had – it was there were learning curves for both of us throughout this stuff. And, and it's too bad because he was such a good tactical manager. You know, yeah. he, he handled his pitching staff so well. And, and I – Really, the guy deserved another opportunity. I mean, you think about it. He had they not strike had the strike when he was here. I'm not sure that wasn't a playoff team. Yeah. I mean, no, he was good. He was a baseball guy. I mean, and he came up through a great organization with the Los Angeles Dodgers, and I mean and Montreal, the, and the people that he learned the game from. You know, and he was telling me some of the guys that some of the legendary Dodger guys that he learned the game from, Maury Wills, Sandy Koufax. Sandy Koufax, like, yeah. You know, when you and Maury Wills is the roving uh you know, base running coach and Sandy Koufax is one of the pitching coaches. I mean, you better you better recognize how lucky you are to be learning from these men like that. Oh yeah. No doubt about it. And that's and he was that was his dream job try to get the Dodger job. And so he took a job with Fox Sports, uh, hoping because Fox owned the Dodgers at the time that that would help get him get in that door. I was trying to recommend him take a job I'd gotten for him on Baseball Tonight with ESPN. And, I mean, we'll never know what the other side would have brought, but I just felt like it was a more watched program. Yeah, by baseball insiders, and it might have helped him more because all those other guys, like Buck Showalter and everybody else, kept getting opportunities. But he had a good broadcasting career. Yeah, I sure mean, did, and he enjoyed doing that and, and stuff like that. I mean, 
you know, I always like listen to him because I know that when he's talking about baseball, I know he knows what he's talking about. He's not saying what they're telling him to say. Another funny thing, uh, when you mentioned the hit and run or run and hit that we did so well in Texas is when I went to Boston, I knew Kevin knew that I was pretty good at hit and run. So I asked him um, one day, I said, Kevin, what would you think about me putting on my own hit and run? And he looked at me. I said, man, I said, I want to hit and run, Kevin, every time there's somebody on base. And I said, and I'll make contact. And I mean, this is a, you know, a tough ask to ask a player asking his manager to trust him enough to put it on. Now, I don't know. I'm sure it's happened with other guys, but I don't, I, I don't know for sure any guys um, that were allowed to do that. And sure enough, he let me do it. So I got to, and I know if I screw it up, nobody knows that I put the hit on hit and run on. They think he did it. So sure, he's, he's going to get blamed for it, right? He's going to get blamed for it. So him allowing me to do it, I mean, that was very trusting of him. And that year in 96, I had to sign with probably most, probably 75% of the time I did it was with Darren Bragg, but I also did it with Darren Lewis and Tim Naring and a few other guys. And I guarantee I had 30 hit and run hits that season and, and two thirds of a season in the big leagues. And, you know, I had the sign, I would like grab my cup and Braggy would, you know, touch the top of his hat and I knew it was on. And I, I only remember messing it up one time where all of a sudden Braggy took off and I didn't give him the sign. I'm like, Oh shit. <laughs> and then I think after that, Kevin said, we can't do it anymore. But, uh, I mean, if you're successful 30 out of 31 times, that's a pretty good ratio right there. Yeah. And it, it does say a lot about him as a manager, because you don't get to that position by turning a lot of things over to, to other people. You know, no, he didn't do that to anybody, you know, and that, that, you know, that made me feel good that he trusted me. Another thing he did as manager was he brought in Maury Wills in September to be a guest coach, guest base running coach. Sure. And man, I learned more in that month of how to steal bases than I had any time in my career. And I'm like, I went nine for nine stolen bases in September with him as a guest coach for one month. And I'm like, what if this dude was here all year? <laughs> I still 50 bases just because he, he taught us how to be ready before you got to first base. Don't wait till you get to first base to figure out what this guy's move is or what he does, you know, with his shoulder or his knee, if he's a leaner, all these different things that normally guys would just wait till they get to first base. And then two or three pitches into the at bat, it's too late. Now you don't. Now you've already lost your opportunity. He goes, be ready when you get to first base. So I would stand at the end of the dugout when I wasn't hitting, and I would, if somebody got on base, I would watch the pitcher. That way, when I got there, I'd already seen it, and it just makes perfect sense. It was like, what? Why am I just learning this now? I've been playing professional baseball for like nine years already. Think about it. There's there's so many things in the game like that, though, Jeff. That people don't like addressing, don't want to deal with, that just seem silly, you know, vision tracking at the plate, you know, actually seeing the ball all the way to your bat. I don't know. Guys rotating their, their lower half the other direction 
so they don't have back issues all the time. You know. Oh yeah. Like, you know, if you take a hundred swings right-handed, take a hundred left-handed just to balance yourself out. But but how many trainers even bring that up to players now? It it's it's like stretching. It just it ah, come on. They know that. They're professional athletes. No, they don't. Look at the paper every spring training and tell me what injury happens to every hitter. <laughs> lower back, lower back, lower back. Mm-hmm. Because you violently torque your back in one direction. Ironically, guys who are switch hitters don't have as many back issues or guys that throw right, bat left. Hmm. I wonder. Yeah, it just seems like common sense. It's just, you know, even in society, they, common sense is gone. <laughs> you know, if you look at social media, Billy, uh, you got guys who uh, didn't make their JV baseball team telling major leaguers they suck. What kind of world is that? You know, I, I mean, I met a few, a couple uh, major leaguers when I was a kid. Like one guy, Chris Spire, lived down the street from us. I think I met him one time and maybe one other occasion to meet a major leaguer. And I was in awe. I was like, man, this guy is like a superhero to me. I would never even think of criticizing him or telling him anything. He's He's at the top of the mountain. But now his social media... You have high school kids talking smack to former major leaguers. <laughs> well, Seriously, what these guys are really tough behind their computer, right? Oh, the yeah, the, the keyboard warriors, the keyboard tough guys. Yeah, they're everywhere on social media. But let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about uh, a profession I've been doing for twenty years, and one that you've been doing for even longer. And I should have listened to you when you told me not to do it, but. Uh, being a major league baseball player agent and uh, how many years is it now that you've been an agent? How? Huh, let's see. We started our group pro agents officially started in 95. So, you know, really 27 years. Yeah. Creeping up on 30 years. Cause I even had a player before that RD long, who ironically was Derek Jeter's roommate in a ball. Which I always says, oh, I came that close. You got the wrong guy, Billy. I know. <laughs> Dang it. But, uh, well, R.D. quit when he was at AAA, batting leadoff every day, but playing a different position. And literally every position on the field, and they just started putting the gear on him to see if he could catch because he was such a freak of an athlete. And he quit. He quit because Jeter had just won Rookie of the Year in the Major Leagues, and he's like, if I can't have what Jeets has, I don't want it. I'm like, what are you talking about? So you can go get a better job than being a Major League utility player? And I go, a lot of guys start out that way. That's not how they finish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, that was a little frustrating for me. But uh, good news was his father, who he barely talked to while he was playing, and he started a business a year later, and they're doing great. No, oh, that's cool. Well. I mean, there are some great stories, um, you know, in my 20 years of being an agent where, you know, you represent a guy and he makes the big leagues and he, you know, you're his agent for his whole career. And, it's, and it almost felt like I was making the big leagues. I was so excited. But you know, <laughs> sure. the part of, the, the, part of the, the ugly part of the business that we both know about and both experiences, um, it's tough to, to accept sometimes when you put your heart and soul into a guy. And you do everything 
you can possibly imagine to help them, whether it's talking them off the ledge or, or, or teaching them, um, you know, how to be a professional and not to make mistakes. And I used to tell parents, I was like, listen, if you're, if you hire me to be your son's agent, I'm going to have to have your permission to handle him the way I think is necessary. And if he's out of line, I'm going to get in his ass. And if he's doing the wrong things, I'm going to get in his ass. And I need your permission and just know going in, that's what I'm going to do because I'm not going to coddle him and tell him he's doing great or he's doing because I don't want to lose him because I'd be doing a disservice to him. And, you know, pretty much every parent that ever hired me said, you do what you got to do. And, you know, had some guys go all the way from college to the big leagues and be their agent their whole career. And it's a great feeling. But the, the sucky part of this industry is that, you know, you do everything you can for a guy for, a long time and buy their equipment. And then you get a text message one day saying, Hey man, thanks for everything. I decided to go in the other direction. You're like, what? And that happens all the time. I know it's happened to you and it's, Oh sure. And it's, you know, these, these other agencies that have no scruples that are going out trying to pinpoint your clients and steal your clients. And that, it, that's the part of the business that I can't stand, man. It's a, it's a part for me. That's just so hard to even understand why why would you want to go trust your career to the thief exactly I mean, if if a guy would steal an aid uh, steal a player from you might he not a thief's a thief might he not just steal from that player i mean yeah. it, it's to me that bond is through thick and thin right we we stuck by our guys when they got released we kept working for them. We kept finding them jobs. You know, I, I still talk to tons of my clients, guys that didn't make it to the big leagues that come in town and take me out to lunch because I did stick by them. You know, and these other guys, when all of a sudden everything's great and Scott Boris is now reaching out to them. Yeah. Or Beverly Hills Pimp Council or. Yeah, and they're not gonna. Those guys aren't gonna be there for you the second those players have a bad one. They're gone. They just disappear. They don't even take their phone calls anymore. Well, and guys like you and I would never do that. That's how I got Darren Oliver. Darren Oliver was my teammate. Played against him. He had nine years in the big leagues. And it was the very first year I became an agent. And he called me because he heard I became an agent. And he was kind of at a crossroads in his career. I mean, for nine years in the big leagues, he went and played winter ball, which nobody does. Hmm. And he was trying to reinvent himself. And I'll never forget. And he goes, Fry Daddy, uh, I need you to help me get a job. I said, I can't, D. I said, you're represented by Boris. He goes, well, stay on the line. I want you to hear me fire him. And I was laughing. <laughs> and I said, no, I can't. I can't do that. I said, you fire him and then call me. And I, I had no – it's my – I've been an agent for like a month or two. I have no experience at all. And I'm like, all right, I'll try. You know, he, he calls me back. All right, I fired him. See what you can do. I called Mike Hamilton. Mike, uh, you know Mike. Mike sure. was uh, the video guy for the Rockies. Um, I said, hey, I need to get in touch with Dan O'Dowd. Um, Darren Oliver, um, you know, is looking for a job. Within 24 hours, the Rockies called me. And they said, hey, 
we thought Darren was represented by Scott Boris. I said, he was, but he fired him. He goes, well, that's, that's interesting. He says, because uh, Scott called us about six weeks ago, and we had no interest in Darren, but things have changed for us, and um, he never called back. He goes, but uh, we'd definitely be interested in bringing Darren to spring training. I called Darren. I mean, like, I've been an agent for two months, and I got a guy a job in, in one day. You know, I was like, Pete, <laughs> we're going to spring training with the Rockies. And he went. Bob Apodaca taught him a cutter and completely changed his career. I mean, there was a point where they did a 30-day contract. And, you know, we were, we were just kind of, you know, in a bad spot. We kind of had to do what they wanted us to do just to have an opportunity. And he pitched nine freaking years in the big leagues after that. You know, and, and think about what you just said. Boris didn't even make that second call for him. No. Because he wasn't the big money guy, you know? Not and anymore. He was before. He made he signed like a three-year, $24 million deal with the Cardinals before, but then he didn't pitch well. So now he's on the downward side of his career. He's never probably going to make the big money again. So he's not important. Let me focus my attention on these guys who are the big money guys. And that's what people don't understand when you hire not every agent's that way. Obviously we have our friends that, you know, are more like us, but for the most part, the bigger agencies love you when you're going well, man. And as soon as, as soon as you're on the downward side of your career, they're like, the phone calls aren't coming. And, and you know, that's what that's why I've changed agents. That's, it's really interesting because people look at, the wrong things in the business, I think, all the time. But the business model's gotten worse. I mean, we're now getting involved with kids when they're 15 years old, holding their hand all through high school. If it doesn't work out the way they want, the chances of you keeping them till their college draft now is harmed because all the other agents jump in. Oh, well, you'd have been a first rounder if I'd have been your guy. <laughs> and then, right. you know... Uh, then so they still got to get to the big leagues, get to there, arbitration. It's, it's a nightmare. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, when I first became an agent, when I partnered up with Jay, Jay Franklin, my uh, buddy you're, growing you're up. Your past best friend, that my Jay old, Franklin? Yeah, my old best, one of my best friends, you know, 20-something years. And, um, yeah, and you know, Jeff, that when, when we ran into each other at your first winter meetings as an agent, I'll never forget this because you you pulled me aside and you said, I know you told me not to do this, but I got a chance to work with my best friend. And which I totally understood. I mean, I get it. You're 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 working with your best friend. That 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 to me made it, well, it's a lot better gamble, at least this way. Mm-hmm. And uh, but uh that guy's not the same guy he used to be, is he? Uh, not quite. No, that, uh, you know, and we were pretty successful there for a while. We were kicking butt and, and a lot of people kept coming up to me and saying, man, everybody that knows you respects you. He says, but, uh, they don't respect that other guy. And it, and it's like, how can Fry not see what we see in this other guy? And I'm like, ah, I'm just, I'm just loyal to a fault, Billy. And I am, I am too. And, uh, you know, eventually it all worked out where, you know, some 
Jay showed his true colors and tried to screw me over after I took care of him for 10 years. And I got, I got to tell you that when I went out on my own, um, man, what a relief. I didn't have the headaches and the stress and the constant drama. It's like, oh my God, the, the weight of the world was lifted off my shoulders because this freaking 20 pound weight I've been carrying around for 10 years. You know, what's the weird part about that is though, that's because you have morals and ethics and think about it. Who did Jay work for? Scott you know? Morris. And that's where he learned all his tricks. And you know what? A lot of those tricks work. I mean, getting your clients hookers and things like that, that things that you and I weren't, didn't truck with things that we thought were morally wrong force those clients to stay with you because you have stuff on them. And it's a, it's an ugly side of the business that I was never ready to embrace. And, you know, probably wouldn't have lost some of those clients that we have over the years. If yeah, we could if we I traveled down that road, but you know what? We can look in the mirror. Yeah. And, and uh, it's funny because Jay's job with Scott Boris was to steal clients from other agents. <laughs> That's how he started in the business. His job was to go around and steal clients and stay in that city, Meyer League City, um, until that guy finally gave in. And he did it. He did a good job at it. He, still, he stole Marlon Bird. He stole Eric Gagne. He stole some pretty high-profile clients from other agents and was hated throughout the industry for being that guy. But it, that just kind of fit his personality. So then – you know, me being the loyal friend um, probably should have paid more attention. Um, but I just couldn't, ha I just don't know how to look for that in people. I just trust somebody because I trust them mm -hmm. until you get burned. And then, you know, it worked out in the long run. I had a huge lawsuit um, and uh, moved on. And, and, and everybody was like, man, I'm so glad you're up by yourself. We didn't like you being around that other guy because it was just, this is not who you were. Well, it's, yeah, I, I, I get it. I mean, I've been lucky. I've had the same partner since I started and Dave and I are very different guys, but Dave is as honest as the day is long. And I know has my back. Um, like you say, we're totally different. I'm half, I'm glass half empty, half full. He's glass half empty. You know, it's, uh, but some of that's even good too. But, uh, yeah, too bad you hadn't, you didn't get in with us early because I know we might have made a good, a good group. I know. And, and I wish I would have, you know, when I, when I ended up firing my agent at the end of my career and, um, I called up the union and talked to Gene Orza because my agent basically did what, you know, the Boris disappearing act, right? Huh? The disappearing act, right? Yeah. Hey, I said, Hey man, uh, what's the deal? I got nine years and 15 days in the big leagues and I'm sitting at home and spring training started. He goes, well, I'm busy with arbitration cases with other players. Why don't you make some phone calls on your own? And I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, you've been my agent for my entire major league career. I've paid you. I don't know how much money. And now I got to make phone calls on my own. So I'm like, piss on you. And I, and I, so I call the union, Gene Orza, then, you know, Donald Fear, the number two man in charge. And I'm like, Hey Gene, I need to fire my agent. 
Yeah, why are you going to do that? I said, because he's not working for me. He told me to make phone calls on my own. Why do I need him? He goes, okay, who are you going to hire? I said, I'm going to hire Billy Martin Jr. He goes, why are you going to do that? I said, because I know Billy, and I trust Billy, and I know Billy's going to bust his ass for me. He goes, is that what you need? I was like, I don't know. Gene, what do I need, Gene? He goes, you need an agent with some pull. I said, oh, so if I want to play for the Rangers, I need Scott Boris? He goes, exactly. Scott owes me a favor. And he made a phone call to Scott Boris, and Boris called me, and like a dumbass, I hired him. And I felt like, I felt like slimy. I felt dirty. And I was like, and I'm so sorry that I did that, Billy. To this day, I'm so sorry that, that well, I did that because but, I know you had busted your butt for me. I would have, and 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 that's where. But especially since where you've come now and been on the other side, you realize that you didn't matter to Scott Boris. He no. he did that for Gene Orza. He had somebody making calls, and the first job offer they got. They stopped making calls and threw it at you. Yeah, you know? I don't think he even did that because uh, he immediately passed me off to Mike Fishlin, who I had like one or two phone calls with, and then all of a sudden one day I got a phone call from Tim Naring, my teammate with the mm-hmm. Red Sox. He's the farm director for the Reds. He's like, "Frito, what are you doing?" I was like, "Sitting at the house." He goes, "You want to come to AAA?" I was like, "I don't know. How much are you paying <laughs> me?" He's like. I can pay you twelve grand a month. I was like, "Let me call you. Let me call you back tomorrow." Next day, I call him back. I said, "Yeah, I'll come." Call wow. Fishman. Hey, I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go to spring train with the Reds. Spring train was almost over too. And he goes, "Oh, how much? What about your contract?" I said, "I already got it. Twelve grand." He goes, "Oh, well, in the future, uh, you know, let us do the negotiating." I was like, "Nah." I said, uh, "I don't need you to do that for me." I said, I don't want you guys to screw it up. I said, I'm not going there to make money. I'm going there to get back to the big leagues. So I got this. And I went, they represented me for four months. Um, I don't, I maybe had one or two more conversations with them and then got rid of them and just went and played for the Reds and never got called back up. But um, so, you know, obviously they weren't really doing much for me after a month and a half, Billy, I'm hitting 372 leading the international league of hitting and I'm still in triple a. <laughs> so, but I felt, I felt dirty. I felt like I just gave in and hired the, you know, Randy Galloway, you know, we both love Randy Galloway. He calls Boris the great Satan. <laughs> you and know? you know what, you know, you know what he said about me in an article when I first started, he Uh-oh. called me the anti-Boris. No way! That's yeah, a compliment. <laughs> I, you know, I I love Randy. Oh, and, he's he's good as gold. Absolutely, but uh, but you know what? But I also understand how would you have looked had you thumbed your nose at Gene Orza as a player and said, you know, no, Gene, I'm not going to listen to you. I mean, the Players Association busts their butts for guys. And he really did that meaning, well, Gene was good to me. Yeah. I don't even think he meant that as a slight to me. I think it just to him was Scott's going to care about you the most because how do you think Scott acts to the Players Association? Right. You, you know, like he does care about all these guys, but he doesn't care. No. He cares about money. And, no, how, and he cares about him, how it makes him look. Oh, he wants to set record deals. I mean, look at poor yep. Juan Soto. 
He's hitting 240. He's, he's three for his last 48 in the big leagues ever since he turned down a $450 million contract. Mm -hmm. Scott wants to set a record and be the first $500 million deal. And it's like $450 million, you turn that down? I mean, I, I remember Juan Gonzalez turned down an eight-year 160 back like in the 90s, which was huge, with the Tigers because he didn't like hitting in Detroit. We we're like, Juan, who cares, dude? Yeah. Go to the moon for 160. Why would you not take this? And he didn't, and he never got that money back. And I don't, maybe Juan Soto will, but that's an awful lot of money to turn down, man, when you're hitting 240. And, and you're with an organization where you've already won a World Series. Mm -hmm. That if you stay there, you're going to go down as the best player in their history. Yep. I mean, so why wouldn't you want to stay there? And I guarantee you, just like you said, it, it was Scott trying to figure out a way to set another record. And because I don't think he cares about the guys. I mean, Harper signed for $320 million on a 13-year deal. That was so he could get more money than Machado got on his – 310 year deal. Right. Just so he because Machado fired Boris. Right. Now, right. But Harper, I had a player who played with him the year before. He said to everybody on his team he wanted to be a Dodger. He wanted to go back to the West Coast where he was from. Mm -hmm. And the Dodgers offered him four years, 40 million per year, which was been the most per season for anybody. And he'd have still been like 28 at the end of that deal. Right. So he'd have gotten another – he'd have made more money and been where he wanted to be. And when it's the kind of money that your grandkids won't be able to spend, right? wouldn't you rather just be where you want to be anyways? You'd think. But, you know, that's where guys like you and me and some of our friends that are agents is, you know, we take those things into account when we're talking to our clients. All right, listen, what, your mom's getting old. Uh, she can't travel to see you. She lives on the West Coast. You want to go play the last few years in your career on the West Coast so your mom can – you can see your mom. Or you just want to go to the East Coast where they're going to pay you the most money and hardly ever see your mom again. Those are types of things that the, the kind of people that we are as agents, we would take those things into consideration where a lot of the other guys are just the, the highest annual value, the highest dollar figure, um, and we don't care about your family situation or where you want your kids to go to school. No, at the end of the day, it's the client's decision, right? Yes. And I'm going to tell them what I think, what I think's best for them, but it's their decision to make. And, you know, it's, that's the part of the business that I like. Cause like I tell my clients, look, I'll yell and scream, but you're bigger and stronger than me and can kick my butt. So don't worry about it. I think you're making the wrong decision. I'm going to tell you that, but it's your decision. You got to live with it. You got to wear it, right? And and that's the way it should be. And I remember one of the first times I had one of those conversations was with the great Joe Nathan, and the Twins had offered him a two year deal to avoid arbitration, and it was one of those deals where I wanted him to do it because knowing Joe the way I did, 
getting it would have been his first security blanket of love. Mm-hmm. Even if he'd have been terrible, he was making a million the next year. And but where I knew we were going to be vulnerable was if he if he signed the deal, I knew it would make him feel so good that he would go become one of the best closers in the American League. Well, if that were the case, from an arbitration standpoint, we'd have been leaving three or four hundred thousand on the table because he'd have met every incentive and and then some. Um, but I knew it would create that problem, and I told him that. I said, "Here's the deal: you sign this and go become one of the best closers in the American League. We'll have left money on the table." And he started laughing. He goes, "Billy, let's hope we have that problem." And yeah. I go. I go, you signing this will create that problem. He looked at me funny. I go, I think having the first bit of security, you're just going to go kick butt and take names. And all the other agents are going to call you and tell you what idiots we were for letting you do this. He laughed. He said, I'll tell them to jump off a damn bridge. <laughs> and and you know what the cool part was? At the end of that year, after he went to his first all-star game and did mm-hmm. as foretold in the prophecy, the twins said, hey, let's tear this second year up and talk about a free agent type deal. A year early, the Players wow. Association told us not to do it, but we said, hey, we work for Joe. We're doing what he said. And we got Joe more money than K-Rod got, who set the all-time saves record that very season. Wow. As a free agent from the New York Mets, Joe got a better deal from the twins because they liked the way we did our business and they loved Joe's character. And it was really neat to see it all go down like that because, you know, that's not happened with any of these other agents we're talking about. No. People don't like those guys. They like dealing with you. They like dealing with us. That's because we're decent human beings. Right. I had Alex Anthropolis when he was with the Blue Jays. I saw him at a, a the Blue Jays were having a tryout at, at the old uh, Fort Worth Cats Stadium. And uh, he go. He asked me for my number, and he goes, "Hey, uh, this is before he was GM. I think he might have been scouting director or something." And he goes, "Hey, uh, can I have your number?" He goes, "If I ever have a kid that needs an agent, would you mind if I recommended you?" <laughs> I was like, "No, man. That's a, you know, I feel honored." But that's a compliment, he right? That he wouldn't have just said that. He wouldn't have said that if he thought I was something. He wouldn't have said that to Jay Franklin. <laughs> no sir. I promise you that. But he, you know, I sat there and talked to him for an hour, and he liked me, and I guess he thought, you know, I was an honest guy and would do everything for my child. That was pretty cool. You know, and Jay was always nice to me, and but I never there were so many things that I never understood. Like, why would he walk around the winter meetings like Larry the Cable Guy? With with the with the sleeveless T-shirt on, and the hat with the oil stain. <laughs> oh. No, and like I say, and he was nice to me, and I don't know if he was just nice to me because I was your friend or whatever. But um, I never got it. I never understood it. I'm like, why does he seem to go out of his way to look and act and dress unprofessional? Never understood that. Billy, I mean, we used to go into meetings where me and McCann would have a meeting with the GM and it would be, where, uh, 
you know, can we wait till Jaywalk goes to the bathroom and go to this meeting so he doesn't embarrass us in this meeting? <laughs> it's like when we walk in and he walks in, you know, looking like you said and and go, uh, you know, there's a, the president of the team, the GM, the manager, the pitching coach, and all of a sudden it just starts this gibberish um, uh, talk and we're like sitting there going, oh my God, how bad do we look as a sports agency right now? Hmm. It happened a lot. It happened a lot. But hey, I, I want to move on from that stuff. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, what was it like growing up going in the freaking major league clubhouse with your dad. That had to be so cool. I mean, Jeff, first of all, as a kid, you don't realize how lucky you are, you know, until, and I'll tell you the moment that it hit me, but I'll give you an example. Here I was in Arlington. My father's managing the Rangers. He left from the Rangers to go to the Yankees. We stayed here, and this this was our home. And I remember being at a friend's house after school one day and him saying, man, I wish my dad managed the Yankees. And I looked at him in total honesty and said, sometimes I wish my dad worked with your dad at General Motors. And he scratched his head for a minute, and he goes, oh, I get it, because I get to see my dad every night. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I get to see him on TV, but I don't get to see him every night. And, um, but, but being in those clubhouses, making the friends I did, the people I got to meet, you're right. I mean, those, those relationships and memories to this day are, are unimaginable to some degree. I, the day it first hit me, I was about 15 I'm in full uni shagging balls in left field at, at Fenway place you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. And uh, dad was managing the Yankees at the time I was traveling with the team. Cause every summer I'd at least do a two or three week stint just to hang out with my father every day, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm out shagging balls in left field. I've got Thurman Munson's catcher's mitt on <laughs> shagging balls in left field in full uni and somebody hits one off the green monster and it makes that iconic thunk that only the monster sounds like. Right. Mm-hmm. And it just, the history of it all hit me right there. I remember thinking, wow, man, Babe Ruth used to run around this outfield and Ted Williams and the DiMaggio brothers. And all of a sudden, man, I'm getting goosebumps. Right. And I'm, <laughs> the next fly ball hit to me like my knees are wobbling. I'm all of a sudden I'm really nervous. And it just hit me for the first time kind of how lucky I really was to be his son and to experience all the history and, and amazing people that I got to be around. Yeah. I mean, I hear some stories like I listen sometimes to the Brett Boone podcast and you know, they're a great baseball family and they grew up oh, yeah. in the locker room with their dad and all these stories. And you know, I remember my uh, oldest son, Cannon, um, used to go in the locker room in, in Fenway. And by the way, uh, two days ago, uh, I became a grandfather again for the second time. Cannon just had a little boy. Oh, um, congratulations. Yeah. Yes. James David Fry, 
he will be carrying on the Fry family name, and uh, so we're excited about that. But I used to bring Cannon in the clubhouse in Fenway when he was about two or three, and he'd be in there, and I, he'd be just whacking balls um, off the tee into the net we had set up there in the locker room. He'd run around with his wiffle ball bat. And, oh, man, it was so fun. And I had him in Toronto. We had family day, and you know I got to pitch him the ball. I'll never forget, he's in his Blue Jays uni, and I pitch him the wiffle ball. He's got this little fat uh, blue bat. And what he used to do back then was every time he hit the ball, he would chunk the bat the other direction to take off running. It was so cute. And so he smacks the ball, and all of a sudden he turns and fires his bat about 30 feet and starts just running. I don't even know which direction he was running, but that's what he used to do. And I wish I would have had more time with him where he got older and was around it to where he could actually, you know, get some coaching from some of my teammates. Oh, no doubt. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that reminds me of though. So I'm sure you've heard at times throughout his career, Ken Griffey Jr. Saying he'd never play for the Yankees. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to tell you the background to that story. And the funny part that I don't think he knows. And I want to tell him one day, because I really like Junior. And when when he was a kid, his father played for my father for the Yankees. Mm-hmm. And Junior would fireballs across the freaking clubhouse. You know, when he was 10, 11 years old, and he had a hose. Mm-hmm. And, and guys would yell at, at Senior and say, Griff, get control of your kid. Because, you know, one of those balls could have hit somebody. Right. And, and he would just duck his head and laugh like it wasn't happening. <laughs> and, and I saw him climbing in Dave Winfield's locker. Hey, Griff, could you get your kid out of my locker, please? <laughs> and that's it. that was what Griffey's answer was. <laughs> this uncomfortable laugh like it wasn't happening. And so guys were going in my father's office complaining. Skip, you got to do something about Griffey's kid. Well, you know, my kid, my dad can't do something about somebody else's kid. So he just said, okay, no more kids in the clubhouse this year. If that's, if you guys are going to complain. Well, of course, I didn't read the papers. I, you know, I'm about 13 or so. And I come walking in the clubhouse the next, after the next win. And I see that, oh crap, look on my father's face. It's the only time dad ever said, uh, pal, step into my office, please. And I had to go into the manager's office and hear that, son, I, I, I banned all kids from the clubhouse because of Griffey's son. What kind of manager would I be if I let my own son in here? He goes, you know, the guys don't not, they, the guys all like you, but I go, dad, I get it. It's no big deal. You know, I'll go play, I'll go play stickball with Robbie Alomar. No big deal. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll never forget that. And I think, that's what Ken Griffey holds over the Yankees because I heard him say it about a year or so after my father passed that he really didn't like Billy Martin because he, he banned kids from the clubhouse and I'm screaming at the television, dude, that was your fault. (laughs) Oh my God. But it really wasn't even his fault. It was his father's fault for just not doing anything about it. Right. I'd love for him to know that the truth because it wasn't the Yankees. It wasn't, anything and and you know what 
maybe because his dad was the way he was, that's why he became so great. So who knows? Yeah, that's crazy. This story, you had the best stories, Billy. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I know that, you know, we've had so many conversations at, at, in different venues, in the back of an SUV driving to Oklahoma for the <laughs> hunt at the winter meetings, four in the morning, sitting around the lobby. Um, one of my favorite stories um, is is that you told me about uh, you going, I guess, every spring training and having breakfast with Ted Williams. And uh, I would love if you would tell that story. Oh, well, kind of cool. First of all, people don't realize just how legit that Red Sox-Yankee rivalry was back in the 50s and stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, Ted Williams hated my father. And, but ironically, they had a mutual friend because my father played for the Yankees. And, you know, I mean, you guys were actually similar players, Jeff, you and my father. Um, You know, if dad was going real good, you know, he was a great two hole hitter. And, in the big games, he was really good. Uh, but most of the time, he was he hit later in the lineup. And he knew if he could get in a fight with Ted Williams, best hitter in the game at the time, uh, and they'd both get kicked out, he was helping his team, right? So he was always throwing barbs at Ted and messing with him as a player. Well, years later they had a great mutual friend named Bill Reedy, who was actually in the car accident with, when I lost my father with dad and he and Ted were great friends too. And he kept trying to get Ted to go have a beer with my father. And Ted would say, no way. I hate that little day go. And he'd say, come on, give him a shot. And he finally said to him, this is what got him. He said, all right, Ted. Cause he goes, I think y'all have been best friends. If you'd have been on the same team here, I'm great friends with you and him. I don't care. I hate him. He said, all right, who was your best friend on the New York Yankees? And Ted said, well, Mickey Mantle. And he said, all right. And who's Mickey Mantle's best friend in life? And Ted went, oh, shit, Billy Martin. <laughs> and he said, yep. He said, so Ted said, all right, set it up. So they actually went out and they had drinks and they had a blast and they developed a relationship. And then dad died less than a year later after they'd finally become friends. So Ted, Ted started inviting me to breakfast. Every time I went to spring training, I'd go, go have a breakfast with him. Cause he really went to bed early. This was when he was, you know, starting to get sick and having issues. And he was asleep by four o'clock. Um, but, but he was still full of vinegar in the morning. And he loved that. I still played in the men's senior baseball league. So one day, He's asking me, how are you doing in your league? And I said, Ted, I'm I'm a mess right now. All I'm doing is either popping up or grounding out to the shortstop. And he goes, yeah, get up, show me your swing. Here we are in this crowded diner, right? It's six in the morning. I'm like, sure, as soon as we get back to the condo, get your ass up and show me your swing. I get up and show it to him. He, he grabs my wrist. He goes, well, no wonder. Look how you're rolling your wrists over. Keep your damn wrists back. Stay in the hitter's position. 
all the way through the swing. He goes, you don't ever need to roll over. If, if your wrist breaks, whatever. <laughs> he just started laughing. He goes, I'm serious. Stay back. Yes, sir. I go to my next game, Jeff. <laughs> I'm two for three with a walk, a double and a triple. And I was total slap it to right singles guy. And my team is like, dude, what got into you? And I said, oh, I just had a little hitting lesson from Ted Williams. <laughs> sure you did. <laughs> that is great. <laughs> he makes you stand up in the middle of a friggin' restaurant. <laughs> but but think about it. it. Just And I didn't even fully swing hardly. I, I felt so goofy doing it. But that's all he needed. Me in street clothes, no bat, nothing. Just, boom, oh, look here. I mean, and you also told me that he really, uh, I found amazing. You know, a lot of people, the hitting experts out there in the social media world talk about, you know, Ted Williams' book and how he's taught about, you know, a slight upswing and this and that. And so now we got to teach everybody because that's what Ted Williams said, even though I don't think he meant that, meant it that way. But you, you talked about how he used to really work on his his forearms because oh, he wanted to be able to stop his swing, he said. Well, yeah, well, he loved that I was an agent, and he would ask me questions about stuff. And he said, man, and, and, and Jeff, his slight upswing in his book, The Science of Hitting, it's not the swing up at the stars crap like a lot of guys are trying to do today. It was just to match the exact plane of the ball coming downward from the mound. Yep. You know, so it's just a tick above level, you know, not not what we're seeing out there. And that really, if if you look at his way and his book, it kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. But but he loved asking me agent questions. And one of the things he said to me one day was. He goes, I just wish I would have known about the weights. Which I gave him the funny look because, you know, he had major power. And I said, what for, Ted, for more power? And he goes, oh, heck no. I had plenty of power. He goes, I would have crushed my wrists and forearms so that I could stop my damn swing when I was fooled. And I just remember thinking, wow, who talks like that? But, but think about it. They swung way heavier bats than you guys did. They didn't know any better. They thought they had to. And, and they didn't lift. And, you know, so especially a swing like Ted's where your lower half's so engaged, you're not stopping that swing with the freaking 40-ounce bat. Yeah, no way. No way. Yeah, I, it's funny. Uh, you know, one of my favorite guys in social me media, the teacher man, uh, was asked about Ted Williams, and they said, uh, would Ted Williams of the 1950s – in 60s, be able to play today? <laughs> and he said no. He said, but if Ted Williams was born today, he could play today. And I'm like, um, I don't think it matter what era Ted Williams uh, played in. <laughs> to, to say that this guy, who's arguably the greatest hitter to ever play baseball, couldn't play today because the players are just too good and the pitching is too good. It just defies logic. It, me so, too. They they say that about Babe Ruth all the time, Jeff. And it's like, 
Really, guys? So do you really think anybody threw Babe Ruth heaters right down the chute? <laughs> I mean, the guy was hitting more home runs than some teams were. <laughs> I'm pretty sure their manager told them, walk Ruth every time. Don't throw him anything that he can hit. I mean, if you watch the old video of that guy, he's dancing around the box trying to bait pitchers into throwing something he can swing at. Yeah. And I see a lot today, and I know Aaron Judge is on this historic run, and I'm a big Aaron Judge fan, even though he's associated with Lil Richie um, <laughs> for whatever reason. But, I mean, I think the dude's awesome. I think he's first class. Um, yep. He's the kind of guy, you you know, kids should emulate how to act like a professional. Now, he is six foot seven, two 280 pounds. He can – Jeff Fry can't do what he does. <laughs> I can't hit a ball 420 feet to the opposite field – um, but this guy has one of those uppercut swings, you know, a lot of the swing and miss stuff, but do you think that if he breaks this, this home run, the 61 number, that that is the actual home run record today because of the, the, uh, performance enhancing drugs, would you consider it to break the all time record? I mean, I don't personally. I think the record's Barry Bonds. Now, granted, he, you know, we all know that he did something, um, but he hit the most home runs ever in a Major League Baseball season, in my mind. Just like Pete Rose. The Me too. King. I, hey, look. Sorry. I agree. And I played with Barry Bonds as a kid, and I didn't really like him because he was he quit all the time. But, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, you know, some of the things they don't talk about. How many of the guys throwing to Barry Bonds do you think were on steroids? Half of them? Oh, yeah. You know, it's, that's part of it, too. And, and, and Major League Baseball just put Big Poppy into the Hall of Fame, who we know tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs. But yet, Roger Clemens, who has seven Cy Youngs, and Barry Bonds, who broke the all-time record, and who neither one tested positive, even though there's all these rumors and we assume and probably rightly so, they didn't test positive. So how can you put him in? And I love him. He was great. He was amazing in the postseason. But he's not even in the top 10 for a first baseman. And he's a DH. So how is he in and those guys being left off? It's very hypocritical what they've done, and I don't know how they can ever fix it, Billy. I, I really don't. And, and my original question uh, was about Aaron Judge and you know this this incredible run he's on. And I'm seeing some of these pitches he's hitting. It's like he, he, he hit that out six home run the other night off the Red Sox. It was a freaking seventy eight mile an hour hanging belt high slider that. I could have hit, and I'm like, I couldn't have hit it over the fence, but I could have hit it. It's like, what? How, this is the one guy you can't throw that to. Mm -mm. Why are these guys throwing these pitches to, you know, the guy has 20 more home runs than the next closest guy. Hey, guys, we're playing the Yankees today. Is there anybody on their team you think maybe we shouldn't let beat us? Uh see who you got. Uh, Aren't you a moron? If, when you let the superstar beat you, you're a moron. Right. I'm sorry. 
what one guy and, and you know and i see these pitches that he's hitting and i'm like i guess these pitchers in my mind a lot of them are throwers there's still some great pitchers but you know they're more worried about getting that spin and flicking that thing up there with as much spin and not they don't even worry about location you can't miss belt high with a hanging breaking ball to the home run champion in the American League. <laughs> Newsflash, guys. This is the guy. He's not the one we throw this to. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna make the next guy beat me. I'm sorry. And you know, even if the next guy's Lou Gehrig, that's that, that's who I'm pitching to. Because that's right. you're a fool. <laughs> Hey, I got to jump in, Jeff and Billy. I give you this is a Dave. Usually, I stay quiet during it because I love listening to Jeff's interviews. But I want to give you guys props on one thing. My 13 year old came in during during the production today, and he's he's a pretty good player, switch hitting catcher, and he's listening to the show in the background. He goes, "If I'm good enough to make it, I want those two guys handling my career." So you, oh, you, got, right. you, got the, you got the endorsement from Tanner. Sounds like a verbal commitment to me. So I'm I'm a loyal guy like you guys. <laughs> you got him. So, um, and then um, I told the story to Billy before the show uh, for Christmas this year. Uh, we've been Billy Martin fans our whole life. Uh, that's what Tanner asked for for Christmas—a Billy Martin rookie card last year. So him and Yogi, he got. So you've got uh, two props for you if he's good enough to make it. That verbal commitment and the fact that he chose the Billy Martin card for for Christmas. Uh, but I want to ask you one question, Billy. We. Uh, we have a pretty big audience here, and our, our whole goal with our with our six shows on the Coach and Kernan Podcast Network is to build better baseball IQs. We're always, you know, we're we're upset where the game is at today. We're trying to help change it. We've got a lot of guys in our corner like yourself that are that are getting their voices out there. But I wanted to ask you a question about your dad's style of play as a manager and as a player. Um, you know, coin Billy Ball. We have we have an audience in not just 50 states, but we have 42 countries that listen to us in a lot of the national team programs and the World Baseball Classic programs. So we've got a big reach in the grassroots system. Can you explain, I know we could probably do a whole show on it, but could you explain a little bit to our, our young audience out there, what's Billy Ball? Um, well, obviously it changed and mutated per for personnel with each team, but but it was a basically, the key was putting pressure on the other team, you know, trying to put so much pressure on them that they're going to make mistakes by, by double steals, hit and runs, you know, doing things that today's analytics guys don't like. And, you know, his Oakland A team set the all-time record for stealing home in one season. And, you know, he, he thought innings ahead, and, and it was really neat hearing some of the stuff he talked about, but he believed in putting that pressure on the other team's defense because he didn't think guys worked as hard as they should have on those things, you know, on a double steal. He believed, and, and I think he's still right, that if you've got guys on first and third, and you've got a lefty on the mound with a slowish move. If that, if you can have your guy at first take a big enough lead to get him to throw over there, and your runner on third base is ready to go, as soon as he lets go of that ball, you send him at home, and he's going to score. 
And he did that in the major leagues on a daily basis, you know, on a regular basis, not a daily basis. But he even told that to Tony LaRussa because he'd made a promise to Tony that he was going to tell him some of his secrets. And he told him after a game, and literally, Tony told me the story. He said, literally, the next game they played against each other, he said, I'll never forget it. We're, we're, we're in about the fourth inning, and all of a sudden it hits me like in slow motion. Wait a minute. First and third, slow move left, yo. And he's about to scream. Next thing you know, my father sends the runner home from third when he when he tries to pick him off. And, and he said he and dad had a little thing where dad would stand up and and fake point a, a sword his direction like and scream touche mother blanker <laughs> and uh that meant you're buying the drinks tonight because i just beat you but he really believed in putting that pressure on taking extra bases doing whatever he had to do hit and run stealing the things that we're seeing disappear in the game. And it's, it's sad because God, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine how much I miss that stuff. I just got a note from Tanner again. He's making his appearance on the show. He, uh, part of his homeschool. Now we homeschool him. I read that same article with Tony LaRussa and I challenged Tanner to come up with the seven different double steal opportunities that Billy Martin used to employ. He came up with five. I told him he could use any resource he could get his hands on. And he said, I haven't had a chance to talk to Billy Martin Jr. yet. So, well, with your permission, I may let him give you a ring to come up with those other two. Well, that's awesome. I'd, I'd love to do it. i tell you a neat story. I mean, this is the way Dad thought. He would bring his minor league managers up. When the minor league season ended, he'd have them come be part of the coaching staff because he felt like it was good to have everybody in the organization understand the way he thought. And that's what Buck Showalter says to this day. It expedited his career by three years. And and he'd also make them be their designated drivers when they went bar hopping after the games. But uh, anyhow, sure enough, Mike Hargrove, who was having a great season as a rookie straight from A-ball, the pride of Perryton, Texas. This was 1974. But his his manager is sitting up in the press box because you can only have so many coaches in the dugout. And he has his pitching coach, Art Fowler, call him up in the press box and say, hey, two innings from now, I may have to squeeze in the winning run. Do you think Hargrove can handle a squeeze bunt? You think he'll get it down? And... Rich thought about it, and he said, absolutely. He's the best athlete on the team. I never had him bunt. He was my three-hole hitter. But, yeah, he'll get it down. Sure enough, two innings later, runner on third, one out. Mike Hargrove bunts in the winning run. The Texas Rangers win that game. And, you know, I, Jeff, you've been around the game forever. Do you know anybody that – could foresee things like that happening two innings down the road? No, and that's where, you know, that's where having a, a Jackie Moore type guy 
setting mm-hmm. next to the managers. There's so much going on in these managers' heads that uh, you know they're not thinking that far ahead. So having um, coaches that have your back and are always thinking ahead is so important. And I just don't know that we have that in the game anymore, Billy, those kind of guys. I really don't. I, I don't think so. I, and, and how many of today's managers even – can make their own calls because <laughs> Buck Showalter and maybe La Russa. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, you look, Aaron Boone, we were talking about the baseball family earlier, but he never managed at any level. And I, when I heard that they were considering hiring him, I was, I was actually having a beer with Brian Cashman, and I was teasing him, saying, you know, I'm infinitely more qualified to manage the Yankees. And he gave me a laugh. I said, well, at least I've managed a team once in my life. <laughs> right. You know, the bottom line is, if you owned a $4 billion sports car, would you throw the keys to somebody who's never driven one before? Yeah. I don't think so, unless unless the analytics are making all the calls and – I don't think that works in this game because I think you've got to use your gut sometimes. A lot. The best managers I played for use their gut. Uh, Jimmy Williams, I know we're running a little bit over. I want to tell a real quick Jimmy Williams story. And we're, you know, he was my manager with the Red Sox, and we're in Toronto, and we're facing a, a Frank Castillo, who, you know, righties are hitting 200 against uh, probably a month or two into the season. And so a bunch of us right-handed guys that were kind of part-time players decided we were going to go play golf that day. So we go to this awesome golf course, Toronto, get up early, go play golf, show up at the field. And we look at the lineup, and we're all in the lineup. And we're like, oh, my God, what what, what are we doing? And hmm. Jimmy calls us in his office, and he goes, well, he goes, uh, this Castillo guy, he goes, guy, the league's hitting 211 against him, the righties. So I figured, what the hell? Let's just put all righties in the lineup. Let's go get them, boys. <laughs> we, <went out> here. <laughs> we got like 12 hits and won the game. But you'd never, they would never see that today. There's no way anybody's going to go against what the numbers say because, you know, they might get second-guessed. And then next thing you know, boss man saying, hey, this guy's not following the program and, uh, and get rid of him. But uh, that's missing from the game too, something else that, that I feel is really missing from the game. I agree. I, I do think Cora's doing it in Boston. I think he's got the ability to buck the analytics if he wants to. And I think that's the way it should be. Like you said, I'm sure I'm sure Buck's not playing that game. I know Girardi wasn't, and that's why he left the Yankees. And I bet we I bet we see it all start to swing back to the middle here real soon. Well, I hope so, man. And and I uh, thank you so much for coming on here. You know I uh, how I feel about you, and and uh, you know you're one of my best friends in the game, and you know I know we'll be friends till uh, till the day we die, and and um, I hope and pray that uh, you know they put your pops in the Hall of Fame because there's no question in my mind that he belongs there. He's one of the best managers to ever play this, ever manage in this in Major League Baseball, and it's due time to put him in there, and I know that you would love, uh, it would mean a lot to you to see that happen in your lifetime. I would, I'm hoping he goes in with 
Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds and some of these other guys that have been left off because that uh, that'll make it that much more fun for me. Right on, right on. Well, thank you, Billy, so much. So much, and uh, hang on here for a second at the end. And uh, this is Jeff Fry signing off from the the Shegon Podcast. And then my good, but it was a pleasure having my good buddy Billy Martin Jr. on today. So thanks a lot, Shegon. Shegon. <laughs>